out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Well, hello. Uh, welcome back to this H.P. Uh, Lovecraft Book Club podcast. So um, in this episode, I will be taking a sh- quick look at the horror in the museum and give you some of my thoughts about it. Um, this is the third of five stories that Lovecraft Ghost wrote for Hazel Heald. Um, so um like many of the revisions we've been looking at lately, especially the Zelia Bishop's ones, these are largely pretty much the work of Lovecraft's. Um, I'm not sure if anything Hazel Heal directly contributed to this, this story. This is straight Lovecraft stuff. Even though it's a little bit over the top, it's not as refined as some of his other later stories, it's really good on mood. And um, maybe it's a little over the top on the mood, but the setting, I think, allows Lovecraft to really play with... Uh, you know the 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 play with uh, sounds and imagery and things like that. It's it's set up really nice. Um, so this was written in 1932 after the Wing Death, but not long after. Um, and it was published in Weird Tales in July of 1933. So um, yeah, let's let's jump into this uh, thing. So one thing to say about this is this story kind of in gives for us a a kind of a new Lovecraftian god um, in the pantheon, if you will, named Ron Tagoth, who uh, is just kind of a something found in the Arctic, um, brought back to to London by an explorer and put in this museum, which is a wax museum. So, um, you know, in those days, I, I guess it's still true. You can still find these things, but you know, when I guess horrific imagery wasn't so easily accessible to people in their daily, you know, just by scanning online or whatever, people if they wanted to be titillated by horror, they could go to these wax museums where, you know, horrific imagery, uh, you know, people guillotines cutting off people's head or you know, horrible wounds or things could be displayed in you know in wax. I, I, I think I've seen. On a smaller scale, uh, wax images in museums and things, but it's—I don't think I've seen anything quite like what's described here. But um, then, love with this setting, Lovecraft's able to play with—is uh, it real? Is it not? Is this all in this guy's head? Is he just a madman, or is he actually holding something that's not a wax creature, but actually a, 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 some kind of otherworldly monster? If you will. So um, we only got really three characters here in the story. We have uh, uh, George Rogers, who's the, I guess, the curator of this museum, the owner of the museum, uh, the one. And he's also an explorer and he's he's direct. He's interested in, in the occult. He's a, you know, a collector of rare occult books. He's interested in rituals. He's a believer as well. Uh, then we have Orobana, who is his kind of like Rogers assistant, but he is He's uh, part of this kind of immigrant working class that Lovecraft uh, incorporates in a lot of his stories. 
And he's a believer in the occult, but he's also, on the surface, fearful and skeptical of it. Now, Lovecraft has a little twist on this at the end of the story, but through much of the tale, he's described as someone who's like, no, we shouldn't deal with this. I know what this is about. And then we have uh, Stephen Jones, not our narrator, but uh, basically our point of view character. And Stephen Jones is a skeptic who's in who's interested in being titillated by the occult and things. He's read the Necronomicon. He's not a full believer, but he's interested in kind of experiencing things. So he's become attracted to this wax museum. So in these three characters, we have three kind of, of Lovecraft's common archetypes uh, displayed. And, he's, and they each do kind of what you'd expect. Stephen Jones remains skeptical until the truth is put upon him. We got... Uh, George Rogers, who uh, wants to kind of un unleash certain things. It's kind of like the cultist uh, character. And through doing that, he meets his doom. And we have Orobana, Orobano, who's uh, the foreigner, who knows something about the truth of these these things, but warns. He's, he's the warning. You should keep this, keep this silent. Now, to the degree, this is a pretty straightforward story, though. Uh, to the degree there's something mysterious going on, it's really in the character of Orobano. Um, how much is he involved in it? How much is he actually a, a servant of, of, of this monster? Uh, he seems, at the end, the suggestion is he's sort of in control. So there's a little bit of, of him playing with expectations of these tropes, but these three tropes are basically things we've seen before in, in Lovecraft's fiction to various degrees um so the setting though is not something it's a it's a great setting it's not quite something we've seen before we've seen i guess similar things in that we've had like occult libraries and and in place i guess the mound is a great example of something where we've sort of seen something like this in the mound if you remember you had a couple people who just were collecting all of this grotesque things to be titillated art didn't push didn't titillate them enough even modern art didn't so they moved on to grave robbing and collecting really creepy stuff and they created a little museum of this but that was a private museum this is for public display um so the the, the story is uh, eleven thousand words uh so it's not very long uh the audiobook was like an hour and 20 minutes uh it's just got two chapters in it the first chapter basically sets things up this and the second chapter involves a vigil uh, in the museum overnight, which is kind of like a dare. It's almost like a, a high school kind of dare, like sleep in the haunted house overnight. And if you do, you know, prove you're not scared or something, right? Uh, that kind of thing. Now, th what's really going on here is Rogers is trying to create a sacrifice for this monster uh, so he can kind of awaken him and, and satisfy his needs for human sacrifice. Up to this point, he had just been killing, you know, giving him dogs and stuff like that. But it kind of is set up like a, almost like a teenage uh, dare to telling someone you should stay overnight in this creepy place. But that setting allows Lovecraft to play with sound and light and imagery because he's in this wax museum full of horrible imagery at night. And, you know, there's something real, real in there that's horrifying. But he's also being freaked out by the by the non-living things, the wax images he's seen and some of the sounds you might hear in a strange place at night. Um, and then it's revealed there's certainly something going on. And so it's it's well constructed in that way. Um, Lovecraft spends a lot of time in this story describing things, uh, really pushing the, the, the senses, I guess, uh, in the story. And I think he does a really, really good job on, of that in this 
this story. Um, I guess another thing we could say is like the other two Hazel Healed uh, stories we've looked at, uh, we get a cl pretty close look at the villain here. The villain, uh, George Rogers, he's not our main point of view character, but we get a pretty close look at his workings and his mind. We spend a, quite a lot of time with him. And like, uh, I guess, the, the first two villains we've looked at in the Hazel Healed series have been uh, revenge tales, I guess. This one is more someone actually trying to serve uh, an outer god, an outer deity of some sort. So anyways, as the story opens, we, we get a description of Stephen Jones and the museum itself uh, in quite a lot. And mostly what's in this museum are the, the, the horrors that people would go to to be titillated in in this kind of late Victorian London. It's sort of our setting. Uh, quote, of course, the usual gory commonplaces were present. Landru. Uh, Dr. Crippen, Madame Demers, Rizzo, Lady Jane Grey, endless main victims of war and revolution and monsters like Gilles de Ross and Marquis de Sade. But there were other things which had made him breathe faster and stay till the ringing of the closing bell. The man who had fashioned this collection could be no ordinary mountebank. There was imagination, even a kind of diseased genius in some of his stuff. So there's a mix. There's the stuff that's like, you know, historical horrors, artistic horrors. Um... And there are the things that this person created uh, through his imagination. And that's one reason uh, Jones is so interested in this is it's he's experiencing something new through this man's creations. Um, now, it's so horrific that there's actually a, like an area which is like adults only, right? Like behind the curtain kind of part of the museum, which children are allowed to see, um, which has got the most horrible stuff. And Jones is particularly interested in that section of the of the wax museum. Now, since he's a common visitor here, he eventually gets to know uh, Rogers. He gets to know George Rogers, and he starts to talk with him. So after we get the introduction to the museum, we're introduced to George Rogers. And basically, he's presented from the beginning, at least from Jones's mind, as a rather demented person. He often got involved in demented talks. He would talk about... He even mentions things from the dreamlands. He mentions things like the panoptic manuscripts. And he mentions his travelers. He's a rich man who's able to travel a lot and go on a different expedi expeditions to presumably bring back horrific things for his, for his um, kind of creepy menagerie here. Um, quote, It was sometimes in June on a night when Jones had brought a bo got bottle of good whiskey and plied his host uh, somewhat freely that the really demented talk first appeared. Before that, there had been wild enough stories, accounts of mysterious trips to Tibet, the African interior, the Arabian Desert, the Amazon Valley, Alaska, and certain little-known islands in the South Pacific, plus claims of having read such monstrous and half-fabled books as the prehistoric panoptic fragments, etc. So he's traveled a lot, and this gives the story kind of a worldliness that it wouldn't normally have just being in a museum. I think that's another really great thing about this story is because it's set in a museum, Lovecraft is able to to people it with, but Lovecraft is able to people it with things from all over the world, right? And and imagery from all over the world, and from his own creations, like Cthulhu imagery shows up here, and other creatures that Jones is well aware of, having read the Necronomicon. Um, so Roger starts boasting about the things he found, and at one point he says, like, "Oh, I." This is after he's drunk, I guess. He says, oh, I, I found something real from nature here. It's not just all creations of my imagination or other, you know, things I just, you know, other creepy 
dead people or something. It's, I've actually found some of this stuff in nature. And then he begins to tell his story of his exploration uh, in, in Alaska. And, um, you know, the local people there don't want, he finally finds a ruin. The local people don't want to help him out. So he has to go and recruit some Americans to do it. That's a nice little, another Lovecraftian trope where the local people know something is up there and, and stay away from it. So they eventually go into these ruins and find this huge ivory uh, throne, which itself is very, very valuable. Um, so it's a wonder why it hasn't been looted before, because you can imagine a huge ivory throne would be uh, of immense value. But he, f it's a. Uh, it turns out it's, it's it, the throne is not empty. It's it's holding a a god of some sort. So something was being worshipped in the past as a, a deity, as a god. Um, and it's somehow connected to the Eskimos' beliefs and things. So now I think I missed a step here in the story, uh, just to kind of follow through in the story. Um, he'd been visiting Rogers quite a lot and got him drunk a few times, and then he keeps hanging around the museum. And one day he finds there's a, a basement to it, uh, a cellar, kind of in a, in a door in the back, like old style cellars. He goes in there, and there he sees uh, this foreigner. It's our first description of this third character in the tale, this uh, Orobano, who turns out is quite important to the story, even though he's kind of a sideline character early on. Uh, quote, uh, The three attendants exchange odd glances, and one of them, a dark, taciturn, foreign-looking fellow who always served Rogers as a repair and assistant designer, smiled in a way which seemed to puzzle his colleagues and which greeted very harshly on some facet of Jones's sensibilities. End quote. So that's, I think he's, he's in the museum and he sees these people. And he's, this guy, Orobano, is always kind of smiling in a creepy way. But he kind of hangs out until closing time. And at closing time, he goes down into the cellar, um, which is, this has this padlock and things. And he's, he, uh, no, there's a, there, he gets in the, the cellar, but there's a door that's padlocked in the cellar. And he also sees down here George Rogers who is becoming increasingly mad looking. He's described as feverish and slouching in his chair. And it's this point that he goes into a story about his expedition into Alaska. And it's, it's, um, you know, a pretty wonderful part of the story. I think, I think Roger's tale here is really, really well told. Um, and it's, it's, it's a nice, it's, it's, again, again, it's another kind of nice worldly aspect to this otherwise very confined and close story uh, where he's able to get this global geography out of this, this museum through this really, really wonderful story. Now, he tells how he finds this thing. It's not empty. And he says, there's something here. There's a monster here. And I wanted to bring it back. Um, and he realized right away, he must, must have been from his occult readings, that this thing required a sacrifice because all these ancient gods sort of required sacrifices. And this thing on its throne must have gotten sacrifices in the past, but it hasn't been getting them. That's why it's, it's like in the statuesque kind of form. He tells the story about it. He tells how he, they box it up and haul it out, are eventually able to haul it out through a lot of trouble. And then he's kind of like in this kind of drunken, mad state saying, do you want to see it? All right. Uh, kind of a pulpy moment, but a nice one, right? Do you want to see it? And he pulls out this photograph he had of it, and we get the description of this creature. Now, Jones is still skeptical. He thinks this is just another wax figure that he made and took a photo of, and, you know, it looks all creepy, but that's it, all it is, is a product of his imagination. 
but Rogers insists that it had to be sacrificed. Quote, it needed the nourishment of sacrifice, for it was a god. Of course, I couldn't get it the sort of sacrifices which it used to have for its day, for, no such, for such things don't exist now. But there were other things which might do. The blood is the life, you know. Even the lemures and elementals that are older than the earth will come when the blood of man or beast is offered under the right conditions. Um, now, we also uh, are told by Rogers that Orobano is, has, hesitates and says you shouldn't do this. You should engage in these sacrifices. But Rogers says how he went ahead and did this. And the sacrifice was were, were dogs, right? Which there's a nice little bit in the, in the story, too, where dogs are forbidden from the from the museum and this seems to be partially the reason for it because this creature will will eat them but nevertheless rogers sacrifices some dogs to it but he's uncomfortable that that's not quite good enough for what it is desiring now uh jones is still skeptical and rogers scolds him and orobano for their well he scorns jones for skepticism and orobano for his kind of cowardice and hesitancy to fully embrace what this was um you know basically suggesting when you're facing uh, like this god you have to set aside your earthly morality and embrace it and that's kind of the debate so we got this three-way debate between these characters at least that's how it seems at the beginning but again there's this twist at the end where it seems Orobano might have been behind the sacrifice the desire for a sacrifice all along or at least somewhat more in the know than we earlier think um, now, because of the skepticism, Rogers encourages Jones to stay the night. And he says, okay, stay the night. If you don't, you'll, you'll believe. He basically says, you'll believe me at the end of the night. You can escape if you want. I won't keep you here, but, you know, you'll be certain of what the truth is. And uh, Jones's attitude is like, okay, I'll do it. But if nothing happens to me, you got to get off these delusions. You have to like come back down to earth and, and tell the truth about how you just created this thing. It's all of your imagination. So that's the setup for the dare, if you will, the dare to stay in the museum. And that's about halfway through the story. Um, now, much of the rest of the story is really well done descriptively because it's nighttime in this museum. He, we have this big door where something seems to be behind there. Obviously, it's our... It's our uh, ancient god. Uh, what's his name again? Ron Tagoth. Um, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't quite believe it. And he's just in this museum with all this creepy stuff going on. So all this creepy stuff around. And Lovecraft's able to play with light. He's able to play with uh, eventually sounds. And we actually see the hallucinations transform from being kind of the eyes playing tricks on him, given the setting and given the light and given the just it being late, late at night in a creepy museum. So at first it's like that kind of hallucinations. Like you'll see like the tentacles of Cthulhu kind of moving and he's not sure if it's just his eyes playing tricks on him or not. Um, you know, but there's a kind of a loneliness to this. There's like no mice. This is one little detail we're given. The lack of mice is a little bit uh, strange for him. I don't understand why there wouldn't at least be some kind of rodents or things in the museum, but there's nothing at all. Um, so for, I think it's like for four or five pages that we just are pushed by this loneliness um, and this isolation and this, and then the, the creepiness of the entities around him, all these wax 
images. And he starts to have uh, another kind of hallucination, which is basically he starts to have imaginations of the outer world. So it's, it's kind of a blink if you'll miss it moment, but it's pretty important in the story uh, where he starts to basically be convinced that maybe there's something else going on here. Uh, quote, he wished that his senses were not so preternaturally keen. Something in the darkness and stillness seemed to have sharpened them so that they responded to faint intimations hardly strong enough to be called true impressions. His ears seemed at times to catch a faint, elusive susrus, which could not quite be identified with the nocturnal hum of the squalid streets outside, and he thought of the vague, irreverent thing like the music of the spheres, of the unknown, inaccessible life of alien dimensions pressing on his own. Rogers often speculated about such things. The floating specks of light in his blackness, drowned eyes, seemed inclined to take on curious symmetries of patterns and motions. He had often wondered about those strange rays from the unplumbed abyss where, which scintillate before us in the absence of all earthly illumination, but he had never known any that behaved just as they were behaving. They lacked the restful am and am aimlessness of ordinary light specs, suggesting some will and purpose remote from terrestrial conception. So he starts to have deeper, I guess, uh, hallucinations, if they're hallucinations at all kind of imaginations of the other world he's like he's he's on the the brink of the thinny if you if you want um but maybe it's his imagination um at least that's how lovecraft kind of plays with us here in the description it's a wonderful moment it's wonderful stuff though then we get to these oral hallucinations that he starts to have so it goes from being the visual hallucinations to oral hallucinations um, he starts to hear like footsteps and sounds and people moving around or maybe something larger moving around. And it's at this point that he sees the, the creature, quote, shuffling towards him in the darkness was a gigantic blasphemous form of a black thing, not wholly ape and not wholly insect. It's hide hung loosely on its frame and its rugose dead eye rudiments of a head swayed drunkenly from side to side. Its forepaws were extended. Its talons spread wide, and its whole body was taut with murderous malignity, despite the utter lack of facial expressions. After the screams and the final coming of darkness, it leapt, and in a moment had Jones pinned to the floor. There was no struggles, for the Watcher had fainted. Now, when he awakens, you know, well, whatever attacked him, right? It's, he wakes up a moment later, and he starts to hear the voice of Rogers doing some rituals and chanting, right? So he's preparing the sacrifice and jones is going to be the sacrifice in fact we're directly told by uh, rogers in his maddening ritual chanting and, and uh, exhortations he says something like i'm giving you the skeptic you know, right I, that's like the old not only i'm giving you human not only am i giving i'm upping up the sacrifice from dogs and mice and things to a real human uh, i'm giving you someone who doubts your existence so he's really getting a lot of I guess pleasure out of that, but he also seems to be driven mad by uh, by the experience. Um, now Jones himself kind of loses it at one point, and and this the scene just sort of ends. We're getting towards the end of the story now, but the scene just sort of abruptly ends in the midst of this really chaotic mixture of imagery, of sounds, of Rogers chanting, of Jones's own increasing madness uh rogers in increasing fanaticism and, and madness as well 
it all becomes a wonderful mixture of, of everything we've been building to. It start this whole second half of the story. It starts really subtle with just light playing with Jones's experiences to a full-blown uh, chaotic uh, ritual with outerworldly monsters and and blood-curdling sounds and things like that. And finally. Uh, and finally, he seems to escape. But the the last couple of paragraphs are really wonderful in how they put all this together, I think. Quote, he did not know now whether Rogers was talking or not. Everything real had faded away, and he was a statue obsessed with dreams and hallucinations so unnatural that they became almost objective and remote from him. He thought he heard a sniffling or snorting from the unknown gulf behind the door. And when a sudden bane trumpeting noise assailed his ears, he could not feel sure that they came from the tightly bound maniac who image swam uncertainly in a shaken vision. The photograph of that accursed unseen wax thing persisted and floating through his consciousness. Such a thing had no right to exist, had it not driven him mad. Even as reflected, a fresh evidence of madness beset him. Something, he thought, was fumbling with the latch on the heavy padlock door. It was padding and pawing and pushing at the planks. There was a thundering on the stout wood, which grew louder and louder. The stench was horrible, and now the assault on the door from the inside was a malign, determined pounding of the strokes of a battering ram. There was an ominous crackling, a splintering, a welling footer, a falling plank, a black paw ending in a crab-like claw. Help, help, God help me. Ah. And then it ends. Um, and then he kind of wakes up and he's try he can't remember much about that night and he doesn't remember how he got back to wherever he got, how he got back home. It's, it's all blanked out. So essentially what happened in the museum that night is he was attacked by Rogers and then Rogers started to begin this ritual of sacrifice, but Jones was somehow able to escape uh, before the ritual was completed. Now he kind of goes, I think he, it suggested he goes to a, like a psychiatrist, a nerve specialist, right? To try to work out what happened to him and to work through his horrific memories and the lost time and all that stuff. Uh, quote, how much, after all, had been a reality? When did reality end and morbid dream begin? Had his mind wholly, has his mind gone wholly to pieces in that dark ex exhibition chamber? And had the whole fight with Rogers been a phantasm of fever? End quote. Um, so, anyways. He still hangs around this museum, though, uh, for whatever reason. He runs into Orobano. And Orobano uh, tells him, yeah, he actually goes back towards the museum and he runs into Orobano there. And Orobano tells him, essentially, you know, you know, Rogers is down, he's sick, or he's, he's got business somewhere, something like that, right? I think, it, I think it's a business trip. He says, Rogers is off on a business trip, not going to be around. He says, uh, he says something about that night he was supposed to stay over there, just that the museum was a little messed up and they had to clean it up. And... You know, this, it had something to do with preparing a new display and ex exhibit. You know, not anything about him staying really the night. Um, something about pistol shots, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not a clear what happened that night. At least it's not objectively known what happened from Orobano, um, it seems. Um, and then they prepare this new display and he says, Oh, we got this new exhibition and it was too horrible that the police actually came down and said, you can't show this. It's just too horrific. It's too monstrous, too morbid to be shown. So the police actually shut down the exhibit, 
But Orobano says, you know, I could show you in. It's no law against the private showing, so I'll take you in, Jones. I'll show you what this is. Now, the name of this exhibition is The Sacrifice to Ron to Goth, which, of course, is the creature that uh, uh, Rogers dug up in Alaska, apparently, according to his story. And the, and, the, and the thing he's trying to perform this ritual with during that night is named as, as Ron to Goth. Um, now, Orobano says, yeah, this is all from Rogers' mind. Rogers was just delusional, as you know, he sort of says, like, you are totally right. No, you know, you should be skeptical about this. This was just a creation of, of, of Rogers. And he shows it this. And this is the description of the display. Quote, fully 10 feet high, despite a shambling, crouching attitude, expressive of infamous, cosmic malignancy, a monstrosity of unbelievability of unbelievable horror was sh shown starting forth from a cyclopean ivory throne covered with grotesque carvings. In the center pair of its six legs it bore a crushed, flattened, distorted, bloodless thing riddled with a million punctures and in places seared with some pungent acid. Only the mangled head of the victim, moving upside down on one side, revealed that it represented something once human. The monster itself needed no title for it, for one who had seen a certain hellish photograph end quote so we have this mangled mutilated human body and we have the creature that he saw previously in the photograph which uh, is fairly well described so I, I guess I didn't read it to you but uh, you can look it up in the story um, you can search online too many people have attempted to recreate this image uh, based on this description um, and now the twist here is there's like a detail in the body of Rogers, or like the what's supposed to be this body. Basically, there's a this sacrifice that's displayed here, this human body. There's a little bit that suggests it's Rogers, right? So first, it looks like Rogers, and the initial explanation given to us by the narrator uh, through Jones's point of view is that maybe this is just Rogers being uh, a little bit self-centered, putting himself in his own display, but. Quote, the wax of the mangled face had been handled with boundless dexterity. Those punctures, how perfectly they reproduced the myriad wounds someone inflicted on that poor dog. But there was something more. On the left cheek, one could trace an irregularity which seemed outside the general scheme, as if the sculptor had sought to cover up a defect in his first molding. The more Jones looked at it, the more mysteriously it horrified him. And then suddenly he remembered a circumstance which brought horror to his head. The night of the hideousness, the tussle, bound madman and the long deep scratch along the left cheek of the actual living rogers and quote so there's like a wound down there that actually jones created during this fight with rogers and the final s scene is orobano's smile his his enduring smile again suggesting that maybe he had something to do with twisting the ritual around so that rogers himself was the sacrifice instead of jones so um that's the story and i think it's a really great one it's fun it's of the three we looked at so far i think it's the best of the hazel healed revisions it's the most that seems like a true lovecraft story uh, especially in the building of mood in in the way of the focusing on the i mean it's kind of a combination of some of his earlier work focused so much on mood and setting that close-knit uh, character study in a in a in a in a character in a like one or two characters in a in a kind of in a horrific experience right even like the statement of randall carter has that um but 
it adds to it this later Lovecraftian kind of worldliness, the the travels around the the world that Rogers goes on, the 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 the, the gods, right, being somehow awakened by human activities. So that's a he kind of adds he combines these two things together really nice. It's, it's it really does seem to me to be a combination of his old and new styles. Um, and I just like it. I, I love the the way the three characters all have a slightly different point of view on the occult. Um, and he, yeah, he does twist it a little bit with Orbano, but you know, it they do are the three main perspectives we get in Lovecraft's stories. Uh, the monster is very well done, and the night in the museum, the overnight experience he, he, before the attack, even is just wonderful with the hallucinations, the eyes playing tricks on him, the hearing things. Uh, you know, and then the subsequent chaos of this fight in the dark, uh, this sound of this monster awakening, it's all really, really well done. Um, and it, it's not a, like the ending is kind of obvious. It's it's a common, I guess, complaint of a lot of Lovecraft stories is that the, the ending isn't all that scary and it's kind of obvious what's going on. But regardless, I think this is a really fun, wonderful story that just got it. It's a great setting. And... You know, this could be, if this was published under Lovecraft's name, I think it would be a more well-read and beloved tale. But I think of among the revisions, this is probably one that gets a little bit more love than some of the others. But, uh, and that's deservedly so. So, um, yeah, I guess that's it. Um, I guess nothing too surprising in it. A lot of shout-outs to other Lovecraftian, uh, deities and monsters and books and texts and, and all that it's uh where this is really when lovecraft is really putting together all these little bits from the even the dreamlands and the other uh kind of arkham cycle stories into a, a broader world building and it's it's done here i think as thoroughly as he does it almost anywhere else so anyways that's it that's uh the horror in the museum Next, in the next episode, I will uh, be continuing looking at the Hazel Healed revisions with the 1933 story uh, Out of the Eons. It's, it's about the same length uh, as the last two. Um, it's pretty good as well, I think. I think it, it's at least equally fascinating with uh, the Horn in the Museum. If I had to choose which I like most i think it'd be hard to choose between the horror in the museum and the out of the eons for the best of the healed revisions um so you know i like it and i hope i'm looking forward to talking about it with you it's um got a lot of interesting like egyptian stuff going on in there uh ancient histories uh it's, it's a fun tale that that spans time in in great ways so um read that if you're following this podcast uh check it out and yeah i look forward to sharing my thoughts about it with you um so i guess that's going to be it for now uh if you've read the horror in the museum let me know what you think of it give me your thoughts uh, below or send me an email at 100 pagescast at gmail.com thanks as always for listening now we're strangers gee it breaks my heart to see you Day after day, turning away, as much as to say, you've 